The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Special thanks to our title sponsor this season, IGS. Founded in 2013, IGS develops industry 4.0 solutions in the global ag tech and commercial lighting markets. As an industry innovator, they make revolutionary controlled environment growth products. For more information, visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. We are right at the start gate. This is the beginning of a marathon. And anyone who tells you otherwise, frankly, is lying. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, our inaugural episode. For episode one, we decided to do something a little special and have on David Farhar. David is the CEO of Intelligent Growth Solutions, a company that makes platforms which deliver ideal climates for plants and people based on a culture of continuous innovation, simple design, and a refusal to accept conventional technical thinking. Interestingly enough, David's interview was the first I had scheduled following the COVID-19 shutdown, so I thought it made sense to juggle the interview schedule a bit, and given the timely nature of our conversation, have him kick off the podcast series. So David Farher of Intelligent Growth Solutions, thank you for joining us on the Vertical Farming Podcast. It's a pleasure. Good to hear from you. So David, just to add some historical context, I think, uh, which is important, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the, the current environment we find ourselves in as of this recording. It's uh, March 26, 2000. And twenty, and uh, the the whole world is experiencing um, the effects of COVID nineteen and the coronavirus pandemic. So I just wanted to mention that and just start off with that and ask how you and your family are doing, um, and then what's uh, the last couple of weeks been like in your world? Yeah, it's uh, it's a very tough time for everybody around the world. It's probably been a couple of weeks for you guys. We've been living with it for more like a month or so. And of course, mm -hmm. our friends over in uh, places like Singapore have been living with it with, for several months. So it's a movable feast. We're, we as a family are fine. Thank you. My daughter's university has been closed till September. So we have her back probably going slightly stir crazy, poor soul. My son and his partner live in the south of Scotland. So they are isolated uh, down there. And we are able to get out once a day, either for exercise or food shopping or, and that really, apart from going to say a pharmacy, that is really pretty much what we're allowed to do. Um, so it's, it's quite limiting. 
And you in in uh, remember any time previously uh, in your lifetime that that you've experienced something similar? I, I was in uh, New York for 9-11 and also during a hurricane there. So it, there's been traces of that, but this is the first time it's appeared to have be, it's it's something that's affected the entire uh, globe as well. So I'm wondering if there's any if there's any, been anything that's been a point of reference for you. Not in reality. I mean, the nearest that I can ever remember to anything like this, I was a, I was an officer, I was a captain in the British Army mm-hmm. uh, during the 1980s. And of course, we trained up for, you know, uh, World War Three. Mm. So I was stationed in Germany. And we regularly did exercises trying to imagine what chemical and biological warfare would be like and how to survive through that. And some of them were pretty realistic. They were pretty debilitating. Mm. This is debilitating in a slightly different way, but, you know, no less scary. And I think, you know, you read about these kind of things in sci-fi books and all that sort of stuff you never imagine it's really going to happen to you yeah and it's not until you you know you go out in your go out in your car to do some shopping and the streets are empty and it's just you know places are just like ghost tents how have you thought about this in terms of the you know as the the leader for your company and i imagine there's a lot of people looking to you for guidance and for leadership how have you thought about anything different in terms of the message you're communicating to the people that you manage well, I guess we have a number of different audiences. There, are, there is the crew of IGS, our fabulous employees yeah. and and our contractors. We have um, our investors. Uh, we just had a board meeting yesterday, mm-hmm. so we have our board of directors and our investors. We have our customers and we have our partners. So we've got multiple audiences, as would any business um, have. Yes, we've tried to communicate very clearly, very succinctly, and to act quickly. When anything has happened, we've relied upon official government advice. We're a small business. We're not a big corporation. So, you know, we have to rely upon things like the government. We do, however, have a very good network of friends and family in our business around the world. And we've managed to track what's coming out of Japan with our partners there, what's coming out of Singapore, what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening elsewhere in Europe. And all of our institutional VC investors are American. So we've managed mm. to track, you know, through there as well. What we've tried to do is be clear, be concise and be decisive. I think at times like this, that is what you need. We have sent all of our office based people home. Mm-hmm. For us, that's not been a hardship because we already had a way of working where people could work when they wanted and where they wanted. Yeah. Sometimes they choose to come into the office to be more social. Sometimes they prefer to work at home. And so from our point of view, that's not been too much of a hardship. Some of the guys who, you know, are single and live on their own and may have moved up mm-hmm. to Scotland to, to work here. That's been a little tougher on them, I have to say. Yeah. You know, they maybe have, um, their family maybe either down south in England or maybe overseas some, some, somewhere. So we're trying really hard to look after them. Uh, we've got a virtual pub tomorrow night at, uh, five o'clock where we'll all share a beer mm. and, and jump on a screen <laughs> yeah. together. Given that all the, um, hairdressers and barbers are closed we've got a bad hair competition going um to see <laughs> see who's mopped up gets uh gets ugly first yeah so you just try and do that kind of thing to, to lift spirits but our customers are being incredibly patient with us and 
actually, ironically, if you think about what we do, mm-hmm. we're all about providing sustainable food security. And so yeah. without wishing to be overly opportunistic, we do think there are things we can do to help. So from our vertical farming point of view, being able to help to provide people with a means of feeding themselves through something like, like this, that's something we're keen to do. And then again, you know, our intelligent grid product for uh, building lighting and sensors and things can also be used for tracking people, maybe even using, you know, special types of light to work on pathogens and things like that. So Mm. we think we can contribute. We want to do it in a non-cynical way. And we're working with quite a lot of governments now uh, on thinking about how this might happen. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And And I've been thinking about that leading up to this conversation because things changed dramatically in the time that we uh, coordinated the call and everything that has happened since then. And obviously the nature of the promise of vertical farming thinks about the just these types of scenarios and how food supplies can be disrupted overnight. And uh, I'm sure that's top of mind for you as well. So I'm wondering if, if you've noticed or if you've thought about some of the solutions that IGS provides and how they may be uh, repurposed. And, and I know you alluded to it a little bit, but I wonder if there's other ideas. What happens during these times is businesses are thriving. You know, obviously businesses are, there are businesses that are closing down and, and, and suffering, but there's also opportunities during times like this. Uh, and I guess, you know, without being opportunistic, but also seeing how the skill set that the team has, if you've thought about other ways to use those types of services for what looks like it's going to be the the new norm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think we probably all now would be sensible to set our expectations that this might not be the last time something like this happens. Viruses and pathogens, they will mutate. There will be further waves of them and so on. IGS is never going to replace traditional farming. You know, we just don't see ourselves having vertical banana groves or, you know, fields of wheat and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's important to be realistic about what we can actually provide. Now, there is an increasing range of crops that we can grow economically. Those economics, again, vary enormously around the world. If I look at the Far East again, two states adjacent to one another, Indonesia and Singapore, the prices are quite radically different in the supermarkets between those two. So a range of crops that is economically viable in Singapore is going to be broader than a range of crops that's economically viable in Indonesia. But nonetheless, we have the ability to grow the normal range of leafy greens and relatively high nutrition, brassicas, kale, all that kind of stuff. But we've also grown a number of root crops. We've grown things like radish and turnip and things like that. We've grown potatoes. We are currently growing chilies and lemongrass, Thai sweet basil, pak choy, a number of things for that Asian market. Uh, We've grown some soft fruit, at least to first fruiting stage and so on. As we continue with our partners at the Scottish Crop Research Institute, the James Hutton Institute, as we continue with them to experiment on an increasingly wide range of crops, we believe we can make a fairly significant contribution to food safety or food security, you know, across a widening range of crop types. So somebody will make money out of bandages, somebody will make money out of drugs, somebody will make money out of 
services, health services and so on, and, and pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. That is the way of life. We may make money out of building, supplying, assembling and supporting vertical farms to different jurisdictions around the, around the world. I don't apologize for that because it's that sort of innovation that can help communities and countries overcome hard times like this. Um, so we don't want to be yes. exploitative, but we do want to be helpful. Yeah, in an earlier discussion I had with uh, Louisa Burwood Taylor of AgFunder, um, she was mentioning the amount of investment that was coming into the industry, the indoor ag tech. And I'm wondering if you've seen signs that that may be either slowing down or picking up given um, the current climate. I think the general feeling is that most investors are going, first of all, to look at their portfolio. They're going to do some sort of an ABC analysis on their portfolio, and they're going to look at the companies that are coming under the most stress at a time like like this and consider where those companies are in their development, in their life cycle, and make decisions about whether they require additional capital. At the other end of the scale, there will be other companies who can help in a pandemic like this and therefore enabling them to ramp up quicker and to provide resources and services and supplies, maybe a completely different reason for uh, putting further investment in. So I think before we see a lot of uh, new and original investment, I think we will see investors analysing their portfolios and looking where they should deploy capital to back up the money that they've already got put to work. Thank you for that insight. Just maybe to take a step back, I know we jumped into the conversation uh, <laughs> given you know where we are currently, but I thought it'd be helpful for you to give a little bit of background as to how you um, ended up in this industry. I, I know that you come from a, a background of um, innovating with your previous companies, but I thought it'd be helpful to provide some context about a, a little bit of your backstory. Sure. I fell into the tech sector completely by accident in 1992. I've never written a line of code in my my life, but I was taught leadership and discovered that an awful lot of the lessons that I had applied previously could be applied successfully, if you were imaginative and creative, to building and leading teams, building then great companies in the tech sector. So since about 92, I have built and sold around about a dozen companies. I've had a couple of failures as well, I have to say, and did an awful lot of my learning during those those lean times. But I had got to a point where in 2016, I had sold a company that was private equity backed over here to business in the United States. And it was a great transaction for all, all of us. So I was able to retire on the back of that. And oddly enough, about 18 months later, the son of the founder of IGS phoned me up and he, in fact, had been one of the partners in the private equity house that had backed my previous business that that we'd sold and said to me, was I interested in looking at something else? After two or three attempts to say no, I finally gave up because he said it was a thing called Agritech, which I'd never heard of, (laughs) in a little town called Invergowrie, which I'd never heard of, in the northeast of Scotland. And and I thought, oh, come on then, let's go and have a look. I'm not doing anything better today. So I went up to have a look at this thing and was just completely blown away. Two aspects of what IGS does that excite me. I actually trained as a chef 
originally, although I never really practiced properly. And my wife is a chef. She did practice for a long time. So we have a love of food uh, in our family. But also I'm a mountaineer by habit. And so the environment means an enormous amount to be. And I have a daughter studying uh, just such stuff at university. So it runs in our family. So something that could produce amazing quality food, but do so sustainably, really piqued my interest. It was further piqued by the fact that this business was founded by a real farmer. So a chap called Sir Henry Aykroyd was a farmer up in Aberdeenshire, which actually is where I come from originally in the far northeast of Scotland. Henry had pioneered the growing of baby vegetables. And he was growing them for two markets, for Michelin star restaurants down in London. But he was also growing them for the high end ranges of the main supermarkets. And so, you know, you would have little zucchini, maybe about three inches long, very packed with flavor, all looking exactly the same and to order. So Henry's business was going very well to the extent that he wanted to try and do this 12 months of the year in the north of Scotland in the summer we get 18 hours of sunlight. But in the winter, of course, we get almost no light. So Henry needed a new source of light to do this and grow this stuff inside glass houses and polytunnels. He contacted an American professor at the University of St. Andrews. And this chap, John Allen, who sadly has passed away, he and his team produced the first commercially viable LED lights. And Henry got together with him and on something the size of your dinner table proved that, yes, in fact, you could replicate sunlight even back in those days. This is like 2013 kind of time. And you could grow things successfully at that scale. But then you're never going to make money growing things at that scale. So the challenge then became, mm -hmm. how do we really, really ramp this thing up? And how do we perhaps even move away from glass houses and into another paradigm? NASA had created, I think, the first ever model of a vertical farm with a view to trying to feed people on places like the Moon and Mars. They had done that, and Henry said, well, we can now do supplementary lighting in a glasshouse or a greenhouse, and that is a product that IGS has today. But could we reduce the energy levels, manage other aspects of the climate other than just light? And could we remove the need for quite a lot of the labor, which in certain parts of the world, of course, is a big expense in agriculture? So the vertical farming thing was what he then sought out to tackle. And he was introduced to an amazing young man in Edinburgh who has skills in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, electronics and communications and so on. His name is Dave Scott. He is the co-founder of IGS and he's our CTO. So for the next four or five years or so, Dave and Henry and a growing uh, small bunch of extremely bright people started working on the vertical farm concept. They built two prototypes near St. Andrews before moving up to Invergowrie, which is just outside the city of Dundee in northeast Scotland, and co-located themselves uh, very smartly, I have to say, with this James Hutton Institute. So we had all of our engineering capability, our R&D, and we had crop science all in the one place. I met them in autumn of 2017, by which time they'd gone through a series of friends and family or seed rounds of investment. And I came on board basically to turn what was largely an R&D project into a viable commercial business. 
So I began to recruit a team of people from my past. When you've run a whole bunch of different companies, you have the great privilege of working with some extremely clever people who have skills that you don't have. And if you're a wise person, Mm -hmm. you will recognize your limitations uh, above all else. And so I was able to pull together a really fantastic team of people, probably actually a team of people that a startup like this doesn't really deserve to have. And then we went out to the market to try and raise an institutional round, a Series A round. And we did that in 2018. So we had a business plan together, began engaging the market about April of 2018. We kissed a whole load of frogs, but eventually we met the guys at uh, S2G, uh, Seed to Growth Ventures in Chicago, Mm. uh, Sanjeev Krishnan, Matt and their partners. We met up with them in the summer at an event in New York, got on with them extremely well. It was clear that they understood this market really well. So we started working with them on a deal, on a term sheet and so on. I then was asked to do an interview with AgFunder for their news feed on their website. At the end of the interview, Louisa asked me if I was aware that they were an investor. I wasn't, but I was delighted to hear it. So we met Michael Dean, the founder of AgFunder, got on really well with Michael. He's a lovely, lovely guy incredibly well networked, incredibly hardworking and dedicated. And so uh, we put a little consortium together of uh, S2G, AgFunder, and then uh, the Scottish Investment Bank. So that is the investment bank of uh, Scottish Enterprise, which is the main economic development agency in our country. So the three of them came together and it took us till the spring of 2019 but we managed to put together a five and a half million pound Series A, at which point we also met the guy from Osprey in New York. They're a multi-billion dollar hedge fund. Mm. They've now created a vehicle called Osprey Ag Science, and they came and topped our round up to seven million pounds sterling. So wow. all the time in the background, the guys were continuing with the R&D. We were beginning to do really serious business and market development bringing in uh, channel partners as well as putting in together a direct sales team until we got to the place where we are today. We have a fully functioning technology company which outsources its manufacture and assembly to third parties but then manages that value chain to deliver vertical farms or supplementary lighting systems in a box to any place in the world. So it's been Mm. a fairly amazing two-and-a-half-year journey so far. That's a fantastic story. Thank you for providing that uh, historical context. And I think it's important for people who are new to the industry to understand all the opportunities that exist, but also to get a feel for someone like you who's had so many success with business prior, deciding that uh, you saw enough and your interest was piqued enough to engage in a brand new opportunity and to your point in a industry that you had not heard a lot about or read a lot about and i'm interested in what a little bit you've touched it in a little bit but your, your thought process in terms of seeing what the potential was for change on a global scale with these types of technologies that we, we now have access to yeah, it's, it's it's a great question. The and uh, particularly now, isn't it? Because if you think about it, we talked earlier about empty streets. Yeah, I think people are going to reflect on how they used to live, how they've had to live for what maybe a period of weeks or months now. What actually feels better? What frustrates them? 
And I think we may see a shift in some habits, things like how we get to work, where we work, what we choose to work, work on, how we shop, the reduction of waste, our diet, all kinds of different things. It's going to be fascinating to analyse, you know, what change lasts on the back of this pandemic and to the degree to which we're willing to invest to make ourselves prepared to survive potentially another one. So I would say that, I mean, the opportunities here are huge, but we also need to be super realistic. Vertical farming and indoor ag in general is nascent. You know, we are right in, particularly with vertical farming, we are right at the start gate. This is the beginning of a marathon. And anyone who tells you otherwise, frankly, is lying. I've said to the press many times in the last two and a half years, after about three decades in the tech sector, I have never come across anything that has attracted as much interest and BS, if I'm allowed to say that, in equal measure. Yes. There are a lot of people telling a lot of lies in this industry about what they are capable of, what is economically possible, what is environmentally achieved so far, and so on. And my big fear for this industry is that we have some large failures. There have already been numerous failures in the Middle East. I fear that there may be failures in North America. And that does not make me happy. It doesn't make me wring my, my hands with glee at the thought of another company going under, because all that is going to do is make people scratch their heads and ask themselves, is this ever going to get real? Is this ever going to be a grown-up industry, uh, a reliable in industry? Because if we're talking about sustainable food security, think about the word sustainable, think about the word security. You know, that is not about being flash. It's about being reliable producing a quality product day in, day out at the right price, at the right quality. So, you know, I think that the industry needs to take a hard look at itself and do a bit of growing up. And I read and hear and talk with an increasing number of commentators and participants in this industry who feel exactly the same as I do. So we're going to be, one of the things we're going to be doing is openly publishing our data mm. across a range of What's the energy consumption? What's the water consumption? What nutrients are we using? But we have already achieved a few things I'm extremely proud of. We had a visit from the Scottish Environmental Protection Agency not that long ago. And the comment that the chief exec made was, well, our job is to license industries, to allow them to carry on their business, but to limit the amount that they pollute or discharge or whatever within the law. He said, you are venting nothing to the air, you are putting nothing into the ground, you're putting nothing into the water course. We don't have a job to do here. You know, this is a completely closed loop system that you've designed. Mm, wow. And so it is a zero polluter. And if you're using renewable energies, you're not using any hydrocarbons either. And then you have to think, well, where can we put these things? So one of our vertical farms simply requires a small square of flat ground. It can be concrete, it could be tarmac, it could be waste ground. It really doesn't matter, but it, it should never be, in my opinion, arable land. The arable land should be left for the real farmers to be going out there and growing our staple crops. 
So what we should be doing is locating our vertical farms approximate to points of consumption or points of production, whether we're producing food for end users, for retail wholesale, for food manufacture, we should be collapsing that food chain. So as we then reflect upon the fact that the bridge between Singapore and Malaysia is now closed and Singapore is now going to struggle to bring in fresh produce, if Singapore had a bunch of vertical farms in its uh, port area or next to Changi Airport or wherever, then it would be possible for them to grow at home a significant amount of the produce. Indeed, that's their strategy. They want to grow 30% of their produce by 2030, but they need the right technology to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think that getting a really high quality supply of crop on a reliable basis and co-locating things as close as you can to the to shorten the food miles, these are massive opportunities for this industry. It's so fascinating and so relevant given everything that's happening. And I imagine your your phone probably has not stopped ringing <laughs> with people accelerating any plans that they might have originally had that were maybe two or three years down the line and understanding that what we've been going through now is all the more reason to start thinking about this as a sooner rather than later discussion. Is that some of what you're seeing as well? Yes, we're working with groups some of them commercial, some of them governmental, at the moment ranging from places like uh, Jakarta, in Indonesia, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand, all the way through the Middle East. So I would say that Southeast Asia and Australasia are reasonably hot. I would say that there is some interest from Japan. I would then say that the Middle East and India, uh, we both have some fairly significant inquiries from and are designing projects with. We have a range of them across Europe. We have a couple in the Caribbean. And then we are talking with some people in North America. But I think what's hit your country, particularly in the USA and to an extent Canada, more recently, actually, I, I would say that Canada for us is more lively than the U USA. I think the USA from what I see, is reeling a little bit at the moment and I think is looking for clear and honest leadership as to what the real status is and what should be done next. So I think the level of interest we've got is following the pandemic, if that makes sense. It's a kind of a wave behind the wave. As people put their heads back above the parapet, they, they're kind of going, hell, what are we going to do about mm. this? And yeah. of course, they have all kinds of things to deal with, not just food. And so governments are having to deal with multiple different things like healthcare, like transport and so on and so on. Given the uh, the customer types that you're working with, uh, they essentially break down into the four of uh, the existing indoor farmers who want to add the technology to their current operations, those that are looking to actually break into urban farming. And then you have the uh, supply chain businesses the wholesalers and retailers who want to control their supply of food, and then obviously governments looking to improve their food security. I'm wondering if across those range of customer types, you've seen an opportunity where accelerating the development could get some of those movements happening faster. Yes, I would say that we have seen more interest from governments. Mm. So if yes, if, if we balance those four out, Governments were probably the least active, say, two months ago. They're now becoming one of the more active. 
I think at the moment, so if you break consumer-facing businesses into retailers and wholesalers who supply the retailers on one hand, along with food producers, they are both absolutely thriving at the moment because everyone needs to eat. The place that has gone totally dead is a combination of what we'd call contract catering. I think you call it food service. Is that right? And then, yes. right. And then hotels, restaurants, pubs, cafes, they're just shut over here at mm -hmm. least. Yeah. So that side of things has gone obviously totally quiet. The real farmers, the, the guys who work the fields, who were looking to diversify, I would say that they are probably a little quieter at the moment because I think what they're doing is concentrating on their own production. We're just coming into spring here, so it's a it's a really important time. I live in a rural, I live in a farming community. You know, all the farmers around where I, I live are having their lambs. The dairy farmers are obviously doing their thing. Mm -hmm. The cereal producers are looking forward to spring, uh, you know, and then the shoots beginning to grow. So those guys are probably thinking somewhere else. The urban farmers definitely see an opportunity. So I would say urban farming, governments, and the retail, wholesale, food production end of the consumer-facing piece, that's where we're seeing most of our activity at the moment. And I would say that I would expect that to morph again uh, once we're at the other end, end of this in maybe another six months' time. Mm-hmm. How fast do you see the changes happening when it comes to the the technology as well? Because I know that a lot of what IGS provides, the benefit of it is that it is modular and it can be adapted to a wide range of environments. So do you see also a push from the technology side in terms of, obviously you mentioned the efficiency of LEDs, but anything else that comes to mind in terms of ro even robotics? Uh, I know there's uh, I've seen some information about new arms made for picking even more sensitive types of uh, foods and what you're seeing from your end. Yeah, so let's break it down into two or three areas, if that would be helpful. There is the... Yes. Right. So first of all, let's talk about the weather and the climates that we create. The best way to think about weather is as a three-dimensional object. The three dimensions being the wind, the sun, and the rain. So we have a ventilation system for the wind. We have lighting system, obviously, for the sun. Uh, we have an irrigation system for the rain, which also actually doubles up as the supply of nutrient, in part, because we don't want to be spraying our crop with uh, unnatural stuff. And there is no, we're not getting the same kind of nutrients as you would probably be putting into soil. So sun, the wind, and the rain, each one of them has multiple factors, maybe eight to 10 important factors. Each one of those factors, and if we, if we take light as an example, you have the intensity of light, you have the brightness, you have the spectrum, you have the photonics, you have the length of the light, you have the various other aspects. Each one of those factors can have an almost infinite number of values. So the mathematics to calculate, if I am looking at two-month-old strawberry plants that are just fruiting, what is the absolute optimal light that that crop needs on that day? That is big, big mathematics, because you're then adding in the ventilation in where you're thinking mm. about 
the volume of air, the flow of air, the temperature, the gas mix, blah, 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 blah. And then you're thinking about the irrigation, how much water, at what temperature, any salinity, pH values, what nutrients are going into it. You're multiplying all these things together. So the first really crucial thing is to have total control of that climate. And if you are growing vine tomatoes and basil, then you had better be able to replicate real weather in Tuscany between May and July. Mm. And if you can't do that, then you're not going to be able to optimize and you're going to be using far too much energy and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's the first main thing. Within that weather system, I think, I mean, the LEDs are now, what, 60 70% efficient. We use yeah. five different colors. We use a red, a far red, a green, a blue, and a white. And with that lot, we can mix and change the brightness as we need to. So we can make nighttime. That's not black. It is nighttime, which is ambient light. We can make sunrise. We can make 18 hours of perfect Tuscan sunshine, and we can make a sunset. And the only reason we could do that is because of a fundamental piece of physics we have, which gives us a level of control that no other system in the world has. And we've patented that. But the one that people overlook because it's just really hard is ventilation. So I told you earlier that we vent nothing to the air, but we bring air in mm -hmm. at the beginning of the process of growing crops. So once we've, let's say we built a farm in the Arizona desert, we'd bring air in at probably 50 degrees Celsius, and we'd then cool that down to about around about 20 degrees and we'd maintain that air between roughly 16 to maybe 25 degrees throughout its life. That air starts with a certain humidity, a certain mix of gases and a certain temperature. We have to then create a, a really even flow across the top of our crop. We have to then manage the gases. We have to manage the humidity. We have to manage the temperature. And I would argue that from the work I've seen our team do, that designing HVAC and designing the ventilation system presents some of the biggest challenges in indoor farming, especially if you're going to be closed loop, environmentally sound, and minimize your energy use. So that for me is a massive one. So that's that's the weather. The next one we need to think about really is the handling. So we use a racking system. Mm -hmm. One of Dave Scott's real specialities is these racking systems for very large warehouses. And in our racking system, we hold our trays at about roughly one foot apart or so and 30 centimeters, 12 inches kind of thing. Because of the control we have, we can actually have a microclimate on each tray and a tray is about six and a quarter square meters. It's about the size of a professional snooker table, maybe double the size of a pool table. Okay. And each tray can be six degrees Celsius separate from the tray above it and the tray below it. So even though they're stacked so close together, each one really does behave as a microclimate. And in fact, we can grow six or eight different crop varieties on a single tray if that is what is required. Wow. And that's not something you see. You look at the photos of most systems that you will see, and they're monocultures. They're growing one thing. They're growing kale or they're growing lettuce or they're growing a herb or something. So that physical control is extremely important. The handling of the trays, how you move the trays up and down, how you stack them. Once you have seeded the trays, the automated handling of putting them away into the system. And then when they are ready for harvest, 
how you extract them from the system, how you pick them, and how you bring them out through the airlock. And that's another thing. When you look at a lot of these uh, the photos on people's websites, they think it's really smart to show people wearing lab coats or white boiler suits with <laughs> hairnets and masks. Yeah, and the sunglasses, right? Of course, of course. So we think it's actually a bit smarter not to have humans anywhere near the damn crop at all, mm. because guess how pests get in? Yeah. You know, they're carried in by us. So let's have the robots do the work. Let's not put the humans in. You know, occasionally we might have a maintenance event where you do need to empty one of the towers and, you know, do some maintenance work. But, you know, given the monitoring we've got through our software, that's all completely predictable. So having that ability to mechanically handle and take the human beings out of the actual growing space itself, we think is enormously beneficial. It means that we can operate with zero pesticides and not have any rates of infection at all either. That in turn means that you don't need to wash the crop. Mm. So all the lettuce that you eat, you buy in the supermarket has been washed in chlorinated water. We don't need to do that. And the supermarkets over here in the UK, the big food retailers have estimated that that is going to double the shelf life of uh, most crops. Wow. <laughs> There's so much fascinating information there. And I think the more you dig into the benefits of everything you outlined, I know a lot of people do think about the replication of the, the sun and the rain, but I think this aspect of the of the wind as you outlined it and as that relates to ventilation is something that not a lot of people think about when it comes to environmental impacts and how when people think of lighting they simply think of replicating daytime but what you just outlined there about the the differences in um, the type of light that exists at nighttime and at sunset and how that actually affects the cycles that a crop would go to in a in a outdoor environment all of that is just incredibly fascinating and, and it seems like you're you're so much more ahead of the curve in terms of thinking about these things well and when it comes to things like climate you also have to think not just about the diurnal pattern from night to day and so on but you also mm. have to think about seasons and you have to think about geography are you in a temperate zone are you in a tropical zone are you next to an ocean? Are you continental and far inland, therefore much drier? You know, different crops grow in very different environments. And, you know, people say variety is the spice of life. Well, you know, it really is. And, you know, all the things that grow naturally probably can't grow somewhere else because they're not going to get the climate that they need. So if we're going to grow a serious variety of crops, not just leafy greens, we have to be able to replicate multiple different climate types. Yeah, this is incredibly, incredibly fascinating. And I, and I want to be respectful of, of the time too. So as we wrap up, David, I'm wondering if I could just ask a slightly different question, just to get some thoughts going around your head. As it relates to this industry, what's something you've changed your mind about recently? I do not think there is such a thing as a global food market. Mm. I do think that we move 72%, or I know that we move 72% of everything we eat transcontinentally all the time. It's amazing. It's like it's a hidden industry flying or shipping food around the world there's a brilliant website an organization called the ciat mm -hmm. which has some absolutely wonderful graphics about this 
So that aspect of it is global because we're growing things out of season in Peru for consumption in Scotland. Blueberries, for example. Yeah. Should we be eating blueberries in the winter? But the th- I do not believe that there is a global consumption market. I increasingly believe that there are regional and local markets. I think that the economics varies enormously, the diet, the choice of food. And therefore, if you are going to produce a technology solution to growing food, which can be applied everywhere around the world, it had better be highly flexible. It had better be modular to fit in different sizes of space, Mm -hmm. uh, but it had better be flexible enough to grow everything from a pea shoot to a chili to a turnip to a strawberry. Otherwise, I think you're going to be irrelevant. So that is my firm opinion. Well, David, I want to thank you for uh, educating my audience on what's currently happening and how it's so relevant what it is that you're doing at IGS is for the current environment that we find ourselves in. And I find it incredibly inspiring uh, what it is that you're doing and what the team is doing. And I think there's a huge potential to make a dramatic shift in how we think about uh, how we deliver food and and how we provide food in in areas, um, especially speaking to everything you've covered around the factors that go into raising these types of crops, uh, that it, this can exist in, in almost any environment given the right planning. And I think the potential for w- what that holds is is really promising. So I appreciate you, sh- you sharing that with us. You're very welcome. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. They've been great questions. I believe this is important stuff. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And so we'll provide all the links that you mentioned uh, in the show notes. Um, is there any uh, place that you're active online or if people wanted more information on IGS and to follow along the journey? So there's IGS.farm, our main website, but we post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. We have a Twitter feed and so on. It's fairly easy to find us, or at least I I'm now talking to my marketing department. I hope it's really easy to find us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and we're we're posting stuff every couple of days as things develop. So I just want to thank you again for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this, especially in light of everything that's happening in our world now. Well, Harry, it's been great. Good to talk to you, and I hope this is useful as you build your business. Once again, thanks to our sponsor, IGS. To learn more, please visit intelligentgrowthsolutions.com. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.